You can get consolation from all sorts of falsehoods, but because it's consoling, it doesn't mean it's true. No, there are a lot of very religious scientists around. Science. There is no evidence for any kind of supernatural being of any you kind. You think people should not have a choice of what to do with their body? Anti-murdering the unborn. And I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it, because we need But this. why should I believe? Well, because it's the truth. All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Science, Faith, and Reasoning. Just a little update. Uh, our website got shut down. It is gone. Um, so basically what happened was you have to pay a lot to keep it up, and I realized nobody was going to our website. <laughs> We have terminated it. I think I will bring it back uh, once I figure out where the direction I want to go with this uh, podcast. It may just need to be a podcast and YouTube channel. I don't really see the benefit of the website, but maybe we'll bring it back. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the role of men and women in the church according to Scripture. So is it time for the boys to come back to town, or is it time for men to step aside uh, because they're toxic? and to allow for women to uh, run the church in terms of pastor the church. So that's really the question we're going to ask today, because I see stuff on Facebook, and I see stuff about uh, there's really a big movement right now for women pastors, not other roles in the church, but to shepherd the flock. And that's really the question I want to address. We are going to talk about some side issues. What about youth pastors? What about... Uh, music ministry, what about uh, teaching children or a women's Bible study? We're going to get into all the details. So does the Bible allow for women pastors in the church? Well, first, before we get into uh, the scripture on this topic, I do want to say a few things uh, up front. Obviously, I believe, and scripture is clear, that women and men are equally created in the image of God. We stand as equals before God spiritually. Um, however, clearly from Genesis, we are designed differently. And because we are designed differently, we have different roles. We have different ways to fulfill God's design and to live out our Christian life. So we're designed to complement each other. We're designed to work together uh, to build God's church, to proclaim the gospel, and to ultimately fulfill our callings. And another note I would make um, is that I don't have a problem with the female leadership outside of the church. Um, you know, every boss or manager I've ever had everywhere I've ever worked has actually been females. It's been women. And they've been wonderful to work for, and they ran the businesses that I worked for uh, incredibly well. So I've actually never had uh, a male boss in terms of actually running the institution that I've institutions that I've worked at. And I've had an incredibly great experience. So I have nothing against women leadership, uh, female leadership. Uh, the only thing, our topics this is going to cover is what is the structure of the church? How are women, what is the role for women in the structure and function of the church? And a lot of people will twist this discussion and try to say that uh, the more conservative view on this and the scriptural view on this is anti-women or anti-feminist or whatever. And that's not at all 
what this is supposed to be about. That's not my intention, and that's not God's intention. The whole purpose of this and Paul's writings uh, in Ephesians and Timothy and the letters to Timothy are not for the degradation of women, but the specification of the role for women in the church. So we're not degradating, we are specifying our role and how to live out our design. Now, what's so crazy about this, because I see stuff all the time about people celebrating these uh, female pastors and that, you know, raising up female pastors for the church. And obviously, I go to First, uh, First Timothy, Second Timothy. That's really where the structure of the church is laid out for the leadership, uh, leadership roles. And we can go there, and that's great. But even if we didn't have that, I just want to pretend like First and Second Timothy were never written, just for the for this thought experiment. If we didn't have First and Second Timothy, and we were going to approach the creation of a church structure, we would go to other scripture that we have that may lay out a hierarchy of leadership. Excuse me, a hierarchy of leadership. So where might we go? Well, Ephesians five lays out. Uh, the symbol of the gospel, which is marriage. So in Ephesians 5, we see basically the family structure, a hierarchy for the family. And in Ephesians 5, it says, the uh, well, this is uh, the note here, it's that the wife is described as a picture of the church. So if you read Ephesians 5, the husband is described as a picture of Christ, the wife is described as a picture or reflection of the church or the bride of Christ. And it says the wife is to obey the husband, as the church obeys Christ, and the husband is to lead the wife, serve the wife, sacrifice for the wife, as Christ does for the church. Thus, the marriage between a husband and a wife, it is a picture of the gospel. Ephesians 5 lays out the hierarchy of leadership for the family, and the husband is the head of the hierarchy of leadership. He is the head of the wife and the family, and Christ is the head of the church. So if we didn't have First and Second Timothy we have Ephesians 5, and we could look at that to say, well, what is God's design for leadership within the home, within the family? Um, so at this point, I would like to ask those pastors who are promoting female pastors. They're raising up you know, girls in their youth groups and saying, yes, you should be a pastor of a church. You should shepherd a flock who are telling them that. Uh, you know, If you agree, first off, I would like to ask that pastor, what are your thoughts on the role of male leadership in the family? And if they don't go, if they do not believe what God's word says about male leadership in the family, uh, well, then, you know, they don't believe what God's word says about anything that contradicts their own biases. So it's a pointless conversation. But they should agree with what Ephesians 5 lays out for the leadership of the family. And if they do, and if you agree with the leadership structure of the family, then why would you think of organizing your church any differently than God organizes the family? Why would we look at the institution of God's holy and perfect design and family structure and then reverse it when it comes to church structure? See what I'm saying? That doesn't really, even if you didn't have First and Second Timothy, if you did not have clear guidelines on the leadership structure of the church and all you had was Ephesians 5 that lays out the leadership structure of the family, I don't know why you would look at the church and say, well, God gave us a design for the family, but you know what? I think in the church, let's do it the opposite. Let's have a woman pastor our church and be the head of the body um, of this of this body of believers. It's just, it, it doesn't make any sense. The only reason you would ever do that is because you are trying to please our modern culture. So 
and this is what's so crazy about Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 paints this picture of the husband and the wife as a picture of the gospel, of Christ dying for the church, of the husband sacrificing for the wife. So that is a picture in marriage. Every marriage is a picture of the gospel. So when we talk about church leadership, it's supposed to be the same way. The husband is to lead the wife um, and lead his little family as a pastor should lead the church family, that local body. So really having a female pastor would be backwards to God's design, first and foremost, but also it would be anti-gospel because it is reversing the roles of the husband and the wife, and it is reversing the role of Christ and making Christ obey us instead of us obeying Christ. And it is a clear picture that we are rebelling against Christ when we go against his guidelines for leadership in the home, and especially when we go against his guidelines for leadership in the church. So even without looking at any specific scripture, which we're going to go into in a second, if you had no specific scriptures on church structure, you already have a perfect laying out of church structure in the family structure we have in Ephesians 5. And I think it's it's easy to connect the dots on creating our church structure similar to how we have our family structure. Now, let's actually get into the verses that specify requirements for church leadership in the church. Let me get a little sip of coffee here. And, all right, let's go into it. So, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3. And there's a lot of context that I think is super important here. Because one of the big arguments you see from these left-leaning churches and those that are really influenced by our modern culture, they say, you know what, uh, Ephesians, First Timothy, Second Timothy, it was really just written for the people at that time, right? It's context. The context is specific to these people in Ephesus, and we can't really apply anything that Paul wrote to Timothy in Ephesians, or, or sorry, that Paul wrote to Timothy in First, Second Timothy, or that Paul wrote in Ephesians, because you know it was just specific to that context. We can't really apply it. Um, well, let's go into why that is ridiculous. So the, the Ephesians, let's talk about Ephesus. So Ephesus was an extremely important city. It was on the western coast of Asia Minor in what now you would know as uh, modern-day Turkey. The population was not small. It was about a quarter million people. Okay, this is a booming epicenter uh, of trade. It was a melting pot of cultures because so many people would come into um the western coast of Asia Minor, into Ephesus to trade goods. All these different uh, religions and cultures and ethnicities were coming to this one place. Women also had lots of rights here. They were not uh, looked down upon or seen as some second-class citizen. In fact, they actually ran the religion of the area. Uh, women had lots of rights. They could buy and own property. There was a Greek philosopher by the name of Strabo, uh, who, or I think I'm saying that wrong, it might be Strabo, and he actually wrote about Ephesus, and he said it was the greatest emporium in the province of Asia Minor. So this place is crazy. The, the city there at Ephesus, it had gymnasiums, it had theaters, public squares, a town hall. It was a lively and thriving place. They had active uh, plumbing systems, bathing areas. Like it was, it was very comparable, and this is what's interesting. It was very comparable to modern-day America. America's a melting pot of cultures and religions. People from all over the world come to trade here. Uh, it's very populous, popular. People have lots of rights. 
So we can't just look at Ephesus and say, eh, the context, you know, a completely different thing. Very similar to modern day times, really. And this city, Ephesus, was an extremely important location uh, in terms of spreading a church or a religion. If you had new ideas, new inventions, uh, new religion, going to Ephesus and sharing those thoughts or ideas or inventions would be a great place to spread it to the world. And whether Paul knew this or not, he was very smart. I think he probably did. Choosing Ephesus as a place to plant a church um, and have Timothy there running this church would be a great place to give instructions that would then spread out to the entire world. So when we see how Paul lays out this structure for the church and how he lays out leadership within the church, I think he was really laying out what he knew would be the structure of the church moving forward for all of time and for all Christian churches, which is how Christians up until about five minutes ago have interpreted these books, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy. We see them as the inspired word of God that are important in our church structure. Why else would God give us these things if it was only specific to you know, that one church at Ephesus why did God inspire it through the Holy Spirit to be written down and transmitted from generation to generation? It's for our instruction. If there's no application for us today, then why would God inspire it? And another important contextual point here, and I, I know it's a lot of context, but it is very important to the applications. Another important contextual point um, is that there was a cultic, a cult religion here that thrived in Ephesus when Paul was writing this letter to Timothy. There was worship of a false goddess called Artemis. Uh, the temple for Artemis is known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So one of the biggest religions in the ancient world. And the legend was, if you know anything about Artemis, uh, Artemis was a goddess of fertility. She was like a, 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 a goddess for women, really. It would help them become fertile. She would uh, protect them in their times of need if they would pray to Artemis. And the legend of how Artemis's image, uh, how they learned about her image, is that it fell from heaven. And there was a craftsman by the name of Canisius who actually built a carving of her structure, and he said that it fell from heaven. And he did this probably uh, to sell, because he was a craftsman and he needed to make money. It was a great way to make a lot of money, because he was making all these little models of Artemis and then selling them to people, and they would worship her in their in their homes and his original carving was used over and over long after he died and they would repair it it was a carving of wood and they just transmitted this from generation to generation now without going into tons of detail about uh, the worship of artemis or the religion of artemis just know she was a goddess of fertility the women really loved her uh, especially men would pray to artemis so that their wife would get pregnant um, the goddess Artemis was served by one eunuch priest who would lead uh, the entire false religion. And then he had dozens and dozens of these virgin priestesses who would serve under him and who were legitimate priestesses who helped run this church. So it was very much a, a woman-dominated cult. And it also consisted of ritual prostitution. So this is the religion of that time that Paul has in mind. He knows of this when he's giving Timothy his instructions for their church structure. So clearly he doesn't want their church to be similar to the false cultic religion of that time, which makes sense. Now, does that mean 
oh, well, only that church had to look that way because we didn't want to look like the culture at that time. No, I think it was it's universally applied to all churches, but it's beautiful how God inspired this to be written at a time when it would come face-to-face with how Satan would structure a church. Okay, so the satanic cult of Artemis with its female leadership and prostitution and sexually immoral practices was a context in which God wanted his church to rise up in opposition to what Satan would design a church to look like. So I don't, I don't get this contextual argument to disregard First and Second Timothy and the book of Ephesians. I, I don't get it. Because if you look at the context and just the culture of that time, it is clear that this modernized ancient world is very similar to ours today, and the applications should also apply today. And even if it wasn't, this is God's word, it should have an application today. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't certain con- contextual points that might change how we interpret something today. Uh, like, for example, I don't think Christians are called to go take the land of Canaan, because that was specific to the Israelites at that time. And it happened and was fulfilled. You know, so context is important. But I think here, if you're honest and you look at the context, you should definitely try to apply First and Second Timothy in your church and in your life. So let's go to First Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And we'll read this, um, and then we'll kind of get into some details. So first, it says in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. So starting off here, Paul's desire is that in every place, not just in Ephesus, not just for Timothy, in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So there's a few key points here. Uh, Number one, this is meant for everyone in every place, which is what he says. And then he starts laying out, uh, he has some guidelines for women as far as they should be modest, they should have respectable apparel, um, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So in other words, women shouldn't be trying to flaunt their bodies and flaunt their wealth. They should be trying to be modest self-controlled, respectable people who want to serve God. Now, contextually, how do we apply that today? Exactly like that. Now, the braided hair, the gold, the pearls, the costly attire, I think the way you could interpret that is probably back then, I didn't do research on this, but I would think braided hair was some kind of uh, sign maybe of lasciviousness, maybe that was kind of risque. Um, But you shouldn't go to church trying to look super attractive. That's not the point, okay? Um, 
And with men, they should be lifting holy hands. They shouldn't be angry. They shouldn't be quarreling with each other. And then it goes on to say, uh, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So it's in within the church. You should also have that same picture that we have in the family structure, that male leadership. And then in verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And that's really the key phrase that, that we're going to come back to. Not that a woman can't teach or have authority within the church, but she should not teach or have authority over a man within the church. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then what Paul says is he reinforces this doctrine because people say, oh, well, culturally, you know, maybe that's just at that time. Well, Paul's argument is that this is how it should be from creation. He says four in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And I was reading on this uh, progressive Christian website, and they were talking about how, see, these verses are really hard to understand. What does it even mean when it says Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And they're basically saying, because we're not exactly sure what this means, we can't really apply that today. But I would say, even if you're not sure exactly what it means, he's clearly referencing back to Genesis, the creation of man and, and, and woman, to show that by design, men are to lead women. So even if you don't surely get all the details in those last couple of verses, you could still apply the general idea um, of what he's talking about. And there are plenty of people who've put in countless hours trying to understand that, and there's great commentary on it. So, if you read the entire letter, Paul also says, he'll say all people, for all, in every place. There's lots of phrases like that that clearly show it was meant for all churches and all places, for all people, for all time. This was not something, and it's going to a place he knows is going to propagate out to the world. Uh, So anyway, and if you look at uh, chapter 3, so if we go on to the next chapter, starting in verse 8, 8 through 12, We have guidelines for deacons. So first we have this clear picture of a woman is not to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Not that they can't teach or have authority in the church, but they can't teach or have authority over men in the church. Now, when we go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8 through 12, it says, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not insincere, not prone to drink much wine, not greedy for money, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then have them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. So, Clearly, you have a distinction in this passage between deacons and women. They're two completely different categories in the discussion. And every reference to deacons are male. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Uh, Deacons must be husbands of one wife. And then that last part, I think, is very powerful that I don't see a lot of people talk about. In the very last uh, little sentence, it says, and talking about husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. 
So for deacons to be good managers and leaders of their household, going back to Ephesians 5, that has to be the man. Man are to be the leaders and managers of their household. So how could a woman ever satisfy that leadership role? They can't because they're not to be the leader of their home and they're not to be the leader of the church. So it is very clear just talking about, you know, teachers, um, teachers over men, those exercising authority in the church, uh, talks about overseers as well, deacons, priests. These categories of leadership where you'll be leading other men, clearly it was it's God's design for men to lead the church. So if you accept, and then going back to Ephesians 5, really if you accept this female authority over men and teaching over men, then you have to also accept that authority in the home and both contradict a swath of Scripture. And you're just completely going against Scripture. And like, what are you basing that on? You're basing that on some progressive Christian's argument from context that is completely inappropriate. And we're going to get into some of the other Scripture that people use to try um, to shoehorn in a female pastor into their church. We'll get to that in in a second. But really the saddest part of all of this to me is that when you accept a female pastor, so you're going to elect a female to be the pastor and head of your entire church, you're really a flipping, uh, you're flipping Ephesians 5 on its head, which means you're flipping the gospel on its head, which means you are enacting an anti-gospel practice in your church, which is a very scary thing to do. So if you read on into 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He clearly says, this is so that you may know how to behave in the house of God. So it says it right there. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So this brings up so many questions for these who say this context does not apply to us today. Is God's house different in Ephesus than it is in America? Is there a different God we're worshiping in Ephesus than we are worshiping in Alabama? Shouldn't how one behave in God's house be consistent? Is it not one God that we worship? So if you read 1 Timothy in context, considering historical context, women clearly, so just to kind of summarize where we are at this point, they would not be permitted to be in any position of authority where they are over men, teaching over men, or in control of other men in the church in any capacity. So clearly that's God's just and righteous design and perfect design for the church and for the family. Now, That leaves plenty of places for uh, women within the church to teach, exercise authority, to have a position. And so let's kind of get into that. So now first, I guess let's talk about Paul's uh, view of women, because he obviously had a very positive view of women. They were a huge part of his ministry. He references them constantly. Romans 16.6, he references Mary. Uh, Philemon 1-2, Aphia, Philippians 4, 2-3, he references Euodia, uh, Syntyche, and in Colossians 4:15 he references Nympha, and it's always in a very positive way. He calls them saints. In Philippians 4, 3, he says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, 
Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I mean, wow, what a description. These are women who are working side by side with him who are working to spread the gospel and their names are in the book of life, like true saints. Like that's beautiful. So women's women are to be helpers and co-workers in the gospel. Uh, it is clear that they are to be highly praised, uh, highly valued, and involved in church structure and the propagation of the gospel. Um, early Christianity, women find Christ at the tomb. They're a part of Christ's ministry. If you look at Romans 16.1, it refers to Phoebe as most, or a lot of translations will translate this as servant of the church. Uh, some translations say she was a deaconess of the church. And a lot of people will hang their hat on that and say, see, women do have authority in the church because Phoebe was a deaconess. Uh, but if you look at that Greek word, and I'm no Greek speaker, but there's a lot of commentary on this that you can read. The Greek word in that passage is for, it translates really most directly to servant. It means to serve. And the Greek word is diakonin. It has 29 occurrences in the New Testament. The word simply means servant or to serve. Now, depending on the context, it could be translated to the to deaconess, which would be a church office. And that would be an official office of service in the church. Now, we talk about service. We're talking about serving other people. That doesn't mean they're exercising authority over a man or teaching over men within the church. It just means they're serving. Um, so we have to think about... Are the deacons in our church, are they just servants, or are they exercising authority over men and teaching men? If they're exercising authority over a man from that position of deacon or deaconess, then that cannot be, it would not be permitted for a woman to have that role. Because in 1 Timothy 2.12, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Key phrase there. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So if your deaconesses in your church do not have authority over men, uh, or teach over men, then I, don't, I see no problem with that. But if they are, and if you look at the modern church culture, at least in America, deacons have authority. They have governing authority over the church. They have spiritual authority over other men. They are the leaders of the church, ultimately. So in our context, especially in America, it is completely inappropriate to have women deacons who are making decisions over men, who are leading men in Sunday school class, they're teaching their Sunday school classes, they're making all the decisions of the church, that clearly goes against 1 Timothy 2.12. So we have to think about what role do they have? And that's not to knock on women, that's just to say, I want to live my life in accordance with Scripture. And if a, if a woman truly understands these passages, excuse me, if a woman truly understands this, the context of this and the the application to our lives today, they wouldn't want to be in a position of authority over a man in the church because they would know what God's Word says about this. And this has been the conviction of the church forever. You know, we're talking about Orthodox Christianity. Men were to serve as pastors. And really, we're coming back to that question. Even though these other ones are being sorted out, clearly the role of pastor or priest is reserved for men. There were no female priestesses over Israel. That was clearly not God's design or direction. Now, can women today serve as youth ministers, 
uh, children's directors? Could they teach a Bible study or Sunday school class for other women? Of course. I think as long as they are not holding authority over other adult men, as First Timothy 2.12 clearly says, it would be permissible. And I think it's a great thing to have. Uh, they bring a lot to the table. They are created in the image of God. They are spiritual equals with us before God. And let's be honest, women uh, get most things done in the church. They they keep our churches running. And they're amazing. And we don't want to discount women and their role in the church because it is an extremely positive role in the church. And I'm thankful to God for what they do in our churches. We just we don't want to degrade women. We want to specify the role for women. Um, and that's what we're really doing here with God's word and what he lays out as his perfect design. So the key takeaway would be as an adult man, like for myself, I shouldn't be looking to a woman to be my spiritual authority or spiritual shepherd within a church. No man, uh, no adult man should have a, a woman over him in the church who is his spiritual leader or, or spiritual teacher. That doesn't mean you couldn't ask a, a woman for advice or their thoughts on a topic or anything like that. They, they shouldn't be your spiritual authority. Do I know all the reasons for that? I don't. But that is clearly what God's Word says on this topic. Now, another counter-argument to this that I read on another progressive Christian website of course, progressive Christianity is, is such a virus. I, I just can't... I keep seeing so much progressive Christian, Christian stuff, and it's infecting every topic. And now, well, one of the things they're pushing for is for LGBTQ plus pastors. Um, but, like, actively living in sin pastors, that's what they want. And they also push for women pastors, of course. And one of the arguments they make is that God used women in a variety of ways in the past, so shouldn't we allow them to serve in all of those ways today? Uh, one of the examples they use is Deborah. She is described in the Bible as a prophetess. She's described as a judge. And then she gives this message from God to an Israelite general, and she sings this beautiful song. But ultimately, if you look at that story, um, Deborah calls the sky Barak to take leadership of the people of Israel to subdue the king of Canaan. So really, she was calling for male leadership. So it's not really a great example to hang your hat on, but um, the really key point there, though, is even if a woman could be a prophetess, uh, you know, the mouthpiece of God, speaking for God to the people, a judge, uh, singing a song before the Lord, there are still zero examples of women priestesses in the Bible. The only examples we have of women being priests in the Bible are those who are affiliated with a pagan religion. And the religion of that time, the pagan religion, would have been Asherah in Canaan. And as we now know from historical studies, the pagan priestesses um, in Ephesus would have been those for Artemis. So any examples of priestesses we have, which would be like a pastor running a church, exercising authority over men within church structure, would are all negative examples. They're all cultic examples. Another example they use is Huldah from 2 Kings. This was someone, uh, the men would go to see to hear a word from the Lord, and the Lord speaks through Huldah as she was a prophetess, and she prophesies for God. You have many examples of positive depictions of women uh, associated with Christ's ministry on this earth. Mary Magdalene, perhaps, uh, they think is the first 
to see the empty tomb. It's pretty accepted that that's who, who it was. And plenty, hundreds of positive examples. Here's the issue. It doesn't matter what, what examples you find of females in leadership roles or beautiful, uh, God using them in beautiful ways in, in the Bible. It's clearly the exception to God's design, uh, and it's not the rule. In the history of God's people, it is clearly not God's intent um, for the structure of the church, while God may use women in many different ways, within the church, the structure of the church is clearly not to be led by a woman priest, a woman priestess. And Paul clearly outlines this in 2 Timothy. And he anchors that argument, and that's what's so powerful about 2 Timothy, First and 2 Timothy, is that he anchors the entire argument in, in Genesis, in the nature of God's perfect design. And again, going back to what is permitted for women in the church, they have all of these roles. Uh, any role where they're not serving as an authority over men, basically. As long as they're not authority over men within the church, it's completely okay, I would say. So to summarize, I do want to read you guys a little excerpt from MacArthur's view on on this of for women in the church. And this is from his website, Grace to You, that I think is a great summary of this entire topic. And he says, From the very beginning, women fulfilled a vital role in the Christian church, but not one of leadership. The apostles were all men. The chief missionary activity was done by men. The writing of the New Testament was the work of men, and leadership in the churches was entrusted to men. Although the Apostle Paul respected women and worked side by side with them for the furtherance of the gospel, he appointed no female elders or pastors. In his letters, he urged that men were to be the leaders in the church and that women were not to teach or exercise authority over men. Therefore, although women are spiritual equals with men and the ministry of women is essential to the body of Christ, Women are excluded from leadership over men in the church. Men and women stand as equals before God, both bearing the image of God himself. However, without making one inferior to the other, God calls upon both men and women to fulfill the roles and responsibilities specifically designed for them, a pattern that can be seen in the Godhead. In fulfilling the divinely given roles taught in the New Testament, women are able to realize their full potential because they are following the plan of their own creator and designer. Only in obedience to him and his design will women truly be able, in the fullest sense, to give God glory. And I'm about to run out of space here. Let's see. Can I... Okay. may just cut off in a second. We'll see how it goes. So I have some questions, and I think... John MacArthur gives us a perfect summary here. Let's get into some questions that I would ask people who are promoting female pastors in the church. And if you believe in female pastors in the church, I would pray that you would read these passages, read the entire book of Ephesians and First and Second Timothy, and then come back and let's have a, a good discussion, an informed discussion on this topic. Okay. I guess it's continuing. I ran out of space. So, all right. So, question number one Is this topic, and this is more of a question for myself, I guess, <laughs> is this topic 
something Christians can disagree on. Should some churches have women pastors and women deacons? Again, getting to the nuance of, are they exercising authority over men? Um, is this something that some churches can have and some churches can't? We can kind of di- agree to disagree and just kind of work together. I don't think so. I think this is straight up a different religion. If you're if you are preaching that women should be your pastor, you are not in Christianity anymore. This is a completely different thing. It is a church-breaking issue. Scripture is extremely clear. The context shows this is for church for today. And I've seen way too many people fall prey to this perversion. And really, we need to stand up for what God's Word says in our churches and just let the cards fall where they may. If it leads to dissension, dissension over truth is a good thing. If you're having dissension because there are some deeper mysteries of God that you disagree with and you're saying, look, I believe in predestination and you don't, so let's split churches, I think there you're getting... Those are things that you can agree to disagree on. But when there's just a clear outline for how you should set up your church and you just say, I'm not going to do it, yeah, you don't need to go to church together because some of us believe what God's Word says for the structure of the church, and those of us who don't need to start a different religion and go with that. A question I would ask the people who believe this is, did the church get it wrong for basically all of history? Has church structure with male leadership just been completely wrong? Or is it something inherent in God's Word and in God's design? And I think with the clear scriptural support that we have, um, the modern movement for female pastors, and again, this is not, listen to the full podcast, is not discounting what women do in the church or any of their leadership or authority roles. It's just over men in the church. Clearly, this new movement for female pastors is just a product of our egalitarian modern culture. It has nothing to do with scripture. And... All of these scriptural arguments are clearly backwards, thought through backwards, just to try to shoehorn the modern culture into the church. And the thing is, all of the arguments for women pastors, you could also use for homosexual pastors, which is what they're doing today. They're saying these guidelines do not apply to us today, and then they just make it whatever they want. Uh, Hence comes progressive Christianity. Okay, another question. Which version of God's church would be better suited to resist unbiblical change to the church in the future? Is the church that's already compromised in this area going to be able to now put their foot down on gay pastors? I don't think so. The church that's that has stood their ground here where scripture clearly outlines the line said, I'm standing on scripture. This is where I put my foot down. That church is going to be a lot better suited to stand up against evil and unbiblical change in the church in the future. Not the one that's already compromised on the guidelines for leadership, because once you've done that, why wouldn't you compromise in other areas? It is a slippery slope. Another question I would ask those who promote uh, female pastors, and I do think, I'm not saying these people who promote this or or have this, are going to hell or anything, or they're or that they're not Christians. I'm saying they're doing something that's unchristian, and they need to repent of that and try to reform their church in a more scriptural way. But my question for these people who have fallen prey to this ideology is what makes you motivated to push for this? Is it God's word? Were you reading scripture? Honestly ask yourself, was I reading scripture and meditating on these passages? 
or any passages in Scripture. And was it that that made me want to have a female pastor of my church? Or was it modern culture making me feel um, wrong for standing on God's Word? Like, what's the actual thought process in your head? And I would be wary to say, if it is our modern culture, then you need to be very concerned about that. If you're wrestling with Scripture and that's where your actual views are coming from, then we can talk about that. But if it's just modern culture pushing down on you, then clearly you know that's not going to be the kind of pressure that you succumb to that has a positive result. Okay, another question. Since all, all of the examples of female priestesses that we have in the Bible, they're associated with the worship of false gods and cults. So we have Asherah in the pagan culture of Canaan, and then through the modern, um, our, his, our historical studies of Ephesus, we know, and through the Bible, that there was the false worship of the goddess Artemis, and we now know that that she was that religion was led by women priestesses. So my question is, does this bother you at all, knowing that the pagan societies were pushing for this, and now you are too? Does that bother you at all? Because it should. Okay, my last question. Does God's design hold authority? Does God's perfect design for the family and for the church have the ultimate authority, or is it your personal preference? If you believe, as I do, that God's design is perfect, and even if we don't understand it completely, His ways are higher than our ways, and there's a reason for His instruction. If you believe that, then you need to take, and I think we all should believe that, we need to take that scripture that talks about how our church should be laid out extremely seriously, and we should try to apply it to our churches and to our lives. And while men and women are clearly equal image bearers spiritually before our God, we do have different roles, and we are designed differently, obviously. Our physical design is different, and God lays out that our spiritual roles in the church and in leadership are different. So can you trust that design or do you need to go your own way? Do you know better than God? Is essentially what that question boils down to. So anyway, to summarize, I think John MacArthur, his commentary, if you listen to that part, lays this out very clearly. Um, it's, 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 this is the traditional Orthodox scriptural understanding, and it is the biblical view. It just is. We see God the Father, he takes on, and this is, I guess, the final point here, and this is what's crazy. God the Father takes on a leadership role in the Trinity. God the Father has a leadership role. The Son takes on an obedience role. He takes on a form of obedience. And the Holy Spirit has a, its own unique way of working. So even God himself has this Dif differing roles for the different persons of the Trinity. They are all equally and fully God himself. The Son is no less God than the Father is. They are equal, but their roles are different. We are made in God's image. Mankind, man and woman, is made in God's image. And it makes sense that we have differing roles for men and women because we are a reflection of God's trin Trinitarian nature, and even in that, there are various different roles within 
God himself. It is completely consistent with the nature of God's creation, and it is completely consistent with the nature of God himself in the three persons of the Trinity, being that we are made in his image. So I think it's a beautiful thing. God's design for the church, for the family in creation, is a beautiful thing. It holds authority, and that's what Paul grounds his entire, the entire basis of male leadership within the church. He grounds it in that design. And that's beautiful. And we shouldn't try to, and maybe, uh, I'm, I'm sure not everyone is just doing this because of the modern culture, but we really have to look at Scripture and say, does this hold authority over my life? Does this apply to me today? And can I apply this in my church, regardless of what the 2023 culture says? And if you are in a church, because there's many people I love who are in churches that have uh, women who exercise authority over men and teach over men, and it's wrong. We need to repent of that. It doesn't mean that these people aren't really Christians or that they're going to hell, but they're they're erring in this area, and they need to repent and turn from that because if we going outside of God's design, missing the target is sin, and we're sinning when we do that. And we have to be we have to be very, very careful of that. And we have to take that very, very seriously. And what a beautiful thing it would be for you to be in a church that does this and you're convicted of what God's word says on this topic. And you say, guys, we gotta change. We gotta repent. What a beautiful picture of God's influence in our hearts and our lives to change to change our ways and look to him as our as our leader, as our God. And that's my prayer. For you, if you are in a church that has a female pastor, like that's got to change. Y'all need to repent of that. Anyway, I, I love you all. Thank you for listening. Again, this is not an anti-women episode. I know my last episode with Shep maybe have seemed like it was. We talked about leadership within the family. This is just God's word and his design for the family. We got to take it serious. Love you all. Uh, remember, the boys are back in town. Have a great day. They were asking if you were around, how you was, where you could be found. Told them you were living downtown, driving all the old men crazy. The boys are back in town.